on today's episode. It's the episode I've referenced for the last eight episodes. Oh, are we doing Isaiah Berlin's Two Concepts of Liberty? And why philosophy matters, causing explosions in your mind. 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 I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. yeah. to What's My Thesis. I'm Javier Proenza. And this is Seth Lauer. We're Los Angeles-based artists who meet every week to share the answers we found to the questions we have. Join us as we explore and expand our worldviews and ask, what's my thesis? Did I miss something? No, we got it. Okay. That was smooth. Okay, go. Um, I just wanted to say, I think it's um, cool. I'm very proud of the students in Florida for standing up about the gun issues. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually, I'm also just wanted to say I'm also proud of my dad, who this past week had a, a letter to the editor of a, a local paper published. Cool. Saying that he would be boycotting any stores selling these types of guns. Wow. Are there a lot of those in, I mean, I don't, I don't Yeah, I think in certain parts of the country, you can just go to yeah. a lot of grocery stores and, and pick up grocery stores. Rifle. Yeah. Assault rifles at grocery stores. Mm-hmm. That's interesting yeah well probably i don't know if it happens here just with i don't know if california's laws are different enough or maybe just the the interests are as well yeah perhaps yeah i still have my cynicism about it but it's nice to see these kids pushing back Mm -hmm. and they're savvy in a way that we haven't necessarily been maybe it takes a few generations to push back and figure out with the mistakes of the previous generation. Cause I kind of feel like the boomers, they had these radical ideas and then their parents talk some sense into them and they fit into the world of their parents, which came out of the 1950s. And yeah, I think we got co-opted and several generations just dealt with angst and agony and apathy and as a cultural norm, I think that the, you know, I guess we're technically millennials, but... I don't know if we are. Are we? Are we the same age? Yeah, I think I'm at the top end of it. Yeah. Okay. I think. Okay. But I feel. <laughs> but I think that the, the, the millennials at the younger end of it have a little bit more internet savvy than we do. I think we maybe got complacent because we were sort of in between. I know that you're not a huge Instagram um, algorithm chaser, despite having your own success on Instagram. I think that these kids are probably a little bit better equipped for this world. Yeah, Uh, I, I don't know, though. I'm not sure to what extent the impact has been because of social media savvy. You know, I'm still a little mystified how they've had the impact that they've had. Like, I I was kind of jaded in, in thinking that 
we're past the point of protests really having that much effect, but this is, it's nice to be proven wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the, uh, what I'm saying about the social media savvy is that when we were growing up, we only had to present ourselves to like our immediate surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I think that nowadays kids maybe who are isolated have an ability to sort of reach out to communities that they can feel a little bit more connected to instead of their immediate surroundings and they can get support from like, for example, these kids are probably getting feedback similar to what we're saying right now from a lot of people encouraging them. Whereas if you were in a small town making a protest without that access to social media, I'm saying not only do they have the tools, but they actually know how to use them better than maybe the boomers. Mm -hmm. I think that imaging is becoming a very real problem or optics as they call it are becoming a very real problem for politicians in this situation. They just don't care And that's really clear. (laughs) And I think victims speaking out, especially this year, there's a lot of that going around, which is great. I, I, you know, victims having a voice and and speaking out is a very powerful thing that's, that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, I don't know, I just read an article on, there's a book by someone from India who calls into question legitimately Winston Churchill's racism and imperialist tendencies. And I know that's addressed in the Oliver Stone docuseries, Untold History of America or something Mm -hmm. like that, Mm -hmm. where they address sort of why the Cold War happened. And it was to maintain sort of imperialism in America. We didn't call it that. But anyway, this is a digression from your checking in. So I apologize. But I think it sort of goes into the idea. And there's a quote. He said that history is going to be kind to him because he is going to be the one writing it. I'm assuming that came after the, <laughs> after the war, not before it. But there's a lot of like he's romanticized, especially there's this way of uh, making a hero myth for these people that they don't necessarily deserve because... Churchill was a piece of shit to, <laughs> to a lot of people. <laughs> Horrible. You know, he was very racist towards Indians. He thought that he, that he came from a classist society, but that doesn't justify Winston Churchill being this white God that mm-hmm. saved us from another white God. But when it came to con- colonialism, he had a very similar idea of people being subhuman as the Nazis did. He just wasn't doing it in his own house. Hmm. So um, we've talked about how we feel about discussing politics. And I think that one of the things that I would like to add to the intro, and I was trying to remember it as we were doing the intro, but um, a place to try on ideas without committing to them, explore the, or a place to sort of explore the reasoning behind 
ideas because I think a lot of times people just uh, dismiss ideas as sort of not compatible. But I think if you sort of get into it, you get a sense of like what people were going through at the time, Mm -hmm. right? Like we just said in the check-in about Winston Churchill that it doesn't necessarily justify it, but he did come from, from a class of society and we need to understand that about his worldview when we turn him into a hero. And at, just as artists, we've had this conversation before, but I know that I've made a personal choice to sort of, in my actual work, this is, this is content. We're generating content and we're doing it as a practice to sort of talk through ideas, but we're not necessarily, this isn't a finished product for us. This isn't like, you know, this is, um, small C content. Yeah. It's, it's an exercise. Whereas our, and to facilitate our practice, which makes it part of our practice, obviously, because this takes a lot of work, but the ideas that we, and we've talked about that we've, we try to put forth in our work or maybe I specifically for myself, I don't want to speak for you, but I know that we have a similar approach to political stuff. I like to deal with more universal ideas that deal with a personal relationship to sort of the world as we exist. And I know in terms of art history, I'm a, I'm very interested in art history as a experiential record, as people trying to express, and obviously it's whitewashed as well, and it's fiction mostly, but you can sort of tap into the ideas that were happening at the time, even especially because it's a, a visual art, and it sort of takes it away from the standard historical re- record where it, it maybe is a little bit more sterile when you're dealing with historians. Uh, you can't there's there's a, an accessibility to or, or there's a thing that visual art makes accessible to the person looking back at a time period film art visual art music all of it contextualizes what we know about the past i feel like that is the duty of the artist to uh, that's the service Mm-hmm. Right. Would you agree with that? How, how do you feel about what I'm saying? I don't want like, you know, ideally. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it always functions that way with the market, but yeah, you know, absolutely. The artists that we would find interesting over time. Yeah. I think they do that. Yeah. And I think that that applies to music as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know we've talked like I what I would say is that specifically for myself, and I'll let you chime in what you think about this, but I tend to feel more comfortable expressing myself in the way that Anselm Kiefer did. I feel like there are pitfalls when you get into the work of John Hartfield, who's a very talented uh, photomontagist. Photomontagist? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That is a word? Or montager. (laughs) Montager. Photomontager. He really targeted Seth Lower. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my mind because you were uh, sitting right in front of me. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Hitler. But... Yeah, he really targeted Hitler. Oh, shit. <laughs> he just targeted Hitler mostly. And 
some of the things that he says are very profound in his work, but because he was, there's a, there's a lack of timelessness to it. It's very, this is our uh, personal target. So for the most part, this is an escape. I think we agree. We can address Trump, but it's not going to (laughs) be a a super Trump heavy because I think that Anselm Kiefer was dealing a lot more with he like they were not at the same time. Hartfield was making publications and a jit prop against Hitler mm-hmm. while Hitler was in power, and Ansel Kiefer was dealing with the realities and the darkness of their past was, and trying to process it. Right? Is he? He's German, right? Yeah, he's, he's German. German. And was he growing up during the war? No, I think... Uh, or was he born after? I don't know how old he is. He was actually born in 1945. Okay. Let me so ask you something. Did yeah. you know that that was in the script? No, but... Oh, because I, I saw you looking at it upside down. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was like, oh, he's feeding... He's like teeing me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you still did it. Either way, whether or not you knew you were doing it and uh, had that... Yeah, so, 19, so Hartfield was dealing with it as it was happening, and... Well, but Hartfield was already middle-aged during that time, Yeah, right? he had... So Kiefer yeah. was born that in, in 45. In 45, and Hartfield, Hartfield, one of the things... He had actually been a soldier, and one of the things that he did, because you know that Hugo Boss did all the uniforms for the, for the Nazis, and it was all very much about looking real sharp and looking real good, and... and <clears throat> And what Hartfield would do was wear his uniform. I don't know if he fought. He must have fought in the, in the First World War. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. But he did have a German uniform uh, that he would wear and let deteriorate. Huh. And this is according to my professor. Okay. Uh, Martinez at FIU. So <laughs> send letters to him. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I remember being pretty influenced by Hartfield in high school. Um, I don't know that he's really dated that well. I think he's maybe seen as an example of uh, of protest art, yeah, and design also. Yes, like, definitely design. But yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how well it holds up compared to Kiefer. I mean, I was thinking one maybe person worth comparing would be Godard who, I mean, during the late 60s, had a pretty strong belief that filmmakers should be engaged with politics and wars, and that if you're going to completely just um, ignore it, then, you know, you're... you're Well, I think that we're also not on that end of the spectrum, either where we're ignoring it. I think we don't... (laughs) But I think I, th- I think maybe there's some in between because Kiefer yeah. I I don't know that much about Kiefer I know that so I'm thinking of the famous painting or paintings of cornfields mm-hmm. and I think there's some text that is kind of um, sinks into the background a little bit so it's yeah, maybe yeah. hard to read yeah uh, I don't know where the language is coming from he, I don't know yeah he's he he has a lot he's well we're digressing quite a bit I think. He was sort of dealing with the post-Dresden bombing 
Germany, the Germany coming to terms with the things that they had done. And not all of his work was necessarily specifically tied into it. It's very moody. It has a lot of... He's a painter. Well, he's not exclusively a painter, but his paintings do use a lot of actual materials from the location, which mm. is important. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I don't know if they're specifically from like, I don't like they're specifically from Germany, which mm-hmm. is in is in and of itself important. I don't know if there if I doubt it goes as far as like getting into like specific locations in Germany mm. that are irrelevant. Yeah. I think that that's ideology or I, that's a practice that came a little bit later. Okay. Uh, but it, it's sort of proto postmodernism, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I think that he has some really interesting pieces that are made of lead. <clears throat> A book made of lead, mm-hmm. a plane made of lead, but they're burdened by their own weight mm-hmm. and sort of rough around the edges based on that. And there's some celestial stuff involved as well on the books. I forget exactly. It's, it was a long time. I saw a show at SF MoMA, mm-hmm. which was really good. Yeah, I just remember a general feeling of... Um, of loss and yeah. memorial kind of quality and like um thinking about like the weight of history and a mark yes like the, definitely the weight that the place has to carry you yeah. can kind of feel that even if you don't know and 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 about. the weight and not just that the weight that the people felt because they had to confront it mm-hmm. for you know in a in a large to a large degree there was a lot of propaganda <laughs> that right. that people were buying into and weren't necessarily fully aware of what was happening in the mechanism, mm-hmm. which is always relevant. Yeah. So anyway, to lighten things up a little bit, um, as, as speaking of political discussions, we're going to be talking about someone today. But I, first, I want to go back in time to a pre-Trump world. I mean, we acknowledge he exists, <laughs> but it, it, we're not necessarily... By Trump, you mean the famous actor from Home Alone? Who's that? Which which actor? Oh, yeah. <laughs> two. Two. That's where you threw me off. Oh, I was Home thinking Alone about too? the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, during the 2016 election... I know we're still feel that's a. Tr- I should have given you a trigger warning. I apologize. <laughs> Even though we live in the post 2016 world, I know that thinking about that moment is very painful for everybody, no matter where you are. Um, but let's have a little fun and think of Marco Rubio <laughs> running for office. <laughs> Do you remember how fun that was? <laughs> you mean running for president? Yes, office against, against Trump. <laughs> Trump oh, yeah, I mean, he's he didn't he recently run for Senate? Oh yeah, no, okay, to, you're right, you're right. Be, uh, I thought he was. I just little. I thought little Marco, little Marco took his ball and went home. <laughs> you sound a bit like Trump right now. <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> so, um, so uh, during the election, he said, "Welders make more money than philosophers. We need more welders and less philosophers." What do you, I, I, how do you feel about, I know, 
It's just, you know, it's, it's pretty acceptable for politicians to say they're in favor of art and then offer funding for art that has nothing to do with our idea of art. Yeah. But, you know, philosophy falls into an interesting category where I think it's appreciated in abstract terms, but it's hard. Like art, everyone has some connection to art, like their kid does art or they used yeah. to do art. Philosophy, it's a little, it seems a little pretentious. Maybe it seems elitist. It's kind of like out of reach. Yeah, but. I get it. I get, I get what you're saying, but <laughs> I also wanted to point out that he said less philosophers. Oh, instead of, um, Fewer. not as many. Oh, <laughs> or not as many as also, there's so many, many options. Not as many. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I like, I use that quote as the starting point for our, uh, official discussion of philosophers by a like individual philosophers. I guess we kind of did that a little bit with the futurists, which this is kind of what we do with every episode, but I wanted to be overt about it on this one. And, um, one of the reasons that we did this format was so that, I mean, or I'm not going to speak for you again. I, I, I just have had Please these conversations. Well, I've had these conversations with you before, so I know that. But but it's, I should say I statements because we have a working relationship and I statements are part, a cornerstone of every relationship. <laughs> so, um, so one of the reasons was that I wanted to have, and specifically an excuse to, spend the time reading this particular text. We're going to be dealing with Isaiah Berlin and a speech that he did called Two Concepts of Liberty. And first, we're going to actually get a, ch- a sense for the way that Mr. Berlin sounds when he speaks so that we get a sense of why I'm going to struggle with his text. Because... <laughs> Uh, Please tell me that he sounds like one of the Three Stooges when he speaks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? 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 No, I can do that. <laughs> it's just his word selection is a little tricky. But I also abridged the version that I'm going to read to facilitate. But he just goes on on side. Like, people that get frustrated with us digressing, mm-hmm. enjoy this. <laughs> <laughs> the first clip is going to be about why philosophy matters. And I want to get your thoughts on it. Oh, and all of this, by the way, this is all from a BBC show hosted by Brian McGee on why philosophy matters. You can find the video on YouTube. What philosophy deals with are the assumptions on which a great many normal beliefs rest. Not the sort of things which people like to dig up because people sometimes don't really want their assumptions examined over much. When looked at, they turn out to be a great deal less secure and a great deal more complicated than they seem at first. And philosophers, by examining these, teach people self-knowledge. They explain to them what they believe and why they believe it. And this is a very central task. What they believe and why they believe it? Yeah, so... (sighs) That's kind of what the artist does, too, in a way, right? Well, yeah, and I was also thinking in terms of, like, what you were saying before we played that clip, which is that it's not a duty that people respect very much, mm-hmm. right? When we were talking about Marco Rubio and his take on things, it's not it, it, the the 
the honor goes to the worker, right? Mm-hmm. The worker is the one, the, the welder. But, I mean, are we going to respect robots weld, that weld over philosophers? Once robots can do all of that labor, and it's already kind of there, moving there. Maybe finally philosophers will matter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) There's like a Wally element that we we help, that we find our meaning. (laughs) All right, let me uh, play the next clip for you. Action itself, perhaps, precludes this kind of thing. Quite obviously, if you're simply actively engaged in some kind of life, constantly to be asked, why do you do this? Are you sure that what the girls which you are pursuing are true girls? Are you certain that what you are doing is not, in some way, doesn't contravene some kind of moral beliefs which perhaps you ought to hold? Or are you sure that some of your values don't conflict with certain other values and you are simply not facing that? I will say this, that if everybody in a society were skeptical intellectuals constantly examining their own roots, nobody would be able to live at all. <laughs> and therefore, <laughs> men of action cannot be called upon all of them constantly to be examining themselves. And it's therefore the task of philosophers, who are, I suppose, people particularly curious about these things, to be doing this particular thing. But on the other side, it must be said that if these things are not examined and left fallow, then societies become ossified. Beliefs turn into dogma, imagination is warped, societies decay. Are you a man of action, Seth? Uh, I think we've determined that I am not. Uh, me neither. <laughs> Not before 3 p.m. at least. <laughs> well, actually, I'd like to submit how much we care about, like, these, the, the philosophy side of life has turned us into men of action because we have deadlines that we meet. <laughs> we stress out over editing this podcast and getting it done on time over what, how good it is and all of that. So let's, let's not get ourselves too inflated. Like for the most part, we have been reading books that we've already read, like that we were into. I had never school. read this before. Okay. Well, this is Sl- wait, you had already read the books on the Bardo. No, I guess the bardo is different. Give yourself credit, Seth. You're a good man. But I don't know how to weld. Society moves by some degree of parricide, by which the children, on the whole, kill, if not their fathers, at least the beliefs of their fathers, and arrive at new beliefs. And this is how development occurs. This is what progress is. What does that make you think of? Uh, The first two things would be Freud... And mm-hmm. the kind of Oedipal thing, and um, which I guess is not limited to Freud, but um, and art, I think, art practice. That's you see that to kind of turn around. I think more clearly from generation to generation in art, where you feel like you have to really do something beyond, and possibly even to kind of like call into question the value of the previous generation. Yeah. Um, in a way that I don't know if you see so much in other fields yeah yeah actually that's very true there's a ooh, that's a good point seth Ding, well, I, I need, I need mm-hmm. a bell like that was that was a good one we have a ball well uh, 
<laughs> Don't let them know where we are. <laughs> uh, in the equipment closet. In the equipment closet. It's very intimate. It's pretty intimate where we are, actually. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting point, how that ends up falling on the other side of things, where it's where uh, men of action versus non-men of action, men of action don't question these things and maybe things ossify and grow fallow, which, by the way, is such a good word. We need to start referring to things that... Now, I, I don't care so much about ossifying, mm-hmm. but growing fallow. Where does ossify come from? That's, that's like uh, calcify. Uh, it's like yeah. bo- a bone-related thing, I would guess. Okay. Um, but yeah, fallow is a cool word. Now, what are rights? If you ask an old man in the street what a right is, he'll be stumped. He won't quite be able, be able to answer. Supposing you say, what kind of thing is a right? Is it something you have at birth? Is it something stamped upon you? Is it some intrinsic characteristic of a man? Is it something which someone has given you? Who, for example, can rights be conferred? Can they be taken away? Can you waive a right? What does that mean? Can you lose a right? Or is, is a right something which somehow is an intrinsic part of your nature in the way in which thinking is or, or choosing or having, um, having a will or something of that sort? Is that what a right is? Uh, other natural rights? What kind of nature? What is nature in that sense? How do you know what these rights are? People have differed a very great deal about what these rights are. Take, for example, let me give you an example. Take, for example, the 17th century, when there's a great deal to talk about rights. Uh, whether, for example, there is such a thing as divine right of kings. Well, we don't believe in that very much now, but a lot of people did believe in it. They believed that kings were special beings with special rights. Then there were other people who believed that no such thing existed. How did they argue? What kind of arguments did they produce? What convinced people? The idea of a right is interesting because what is it? How do you define it? And we're going to get into that. That's what we're going to cover today because we're going to be dealing with Isaiah Berlin's two concepts of liberty, which is a very succinct, well, (laughs) relatively relatively succinct uh, breakdown of two different concepts of liberty that specific that were specifically in conflict at the time he it um it's relevant to the war <laughs> but before we get into that i have one last little little morsel for you and this is about what the philosopher's job is there are two sets of values here which come into conflict it isn't the job of the moral philosopher to tell a man which of these values to make his own, but it is his job to tell him that in a situation of this kind, these are the values that are involved. These are the forms of life which have come into collision. These are the issues which he has to decide between. And in the end, of course, a man has to accept personal responsibility and just do what he thinks right. Personal responsibility is an interesting concept, I think. Well, I think it goes specifically to what I see in your work and what I know of my work. <laughs> what I know, Wait, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I got that backwards. <laughs> Is uh, that um, I don't really think that we're out to tell people how to live their lives. I think, or I don't specifically feel like it's my responsibility but it is, I do feel the onus is on me to ask all the questions around that. 
And I think maybe this is sort of becoming a how we're going to deal with things in this show when it gets less light than lucid dreaming. And when we want to talk about more serious things that we're not necessarily the authorities and we're not necessarily always going to agree with any one idea because Isaiah Berlin talks about value pluralism, which is criticized for being a rebranding of moral relativism. I don't know enough about either of those to get into that debate, but what I can say on a very superficial level, what value pluralism deals with is the idea that when you take any values to their logical conclusion, they will conflict with other values mm -hmm. that reach their logical and conclusion. And this is an example of what? Value pluralism. Which is compared to what? Moral relativism. relativism. Okay. So he's also a Zionist, which is one of those bittersweet ironies of life where it's not, it's a very complicated thing that gets into things we won't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so, nicely done. <laughs> That's probably Dance staying in. That. <laughs> That's probably staying in. <laughs> All right. So, two concepts of liberty was a lecture given by Berlin at Oxford University on October 31st in 1958. It would later be published as a pamphlet, and I have excerpts from it and the important thing is that this is 13 years after world war ii so you got to think this is a decade after a thing that really came to a head to speak lightly about it and was important enough that it's still affecting our world today right this is from him there has perhaps been no time in modern history where so large a number of human beings in the East and the West, have had their notions and indeed their lives so deeply altered, and in some cases, violently upset by fanatically held social and political doctrines. To coerce a man is to deprive him of freedom. Freedom from what? Almost every moralist in human history has praised freedom. Like happiness and goodness, like nature and reality, the meaning of this term is so porous that there is little interpretation that it seems able to resist. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out that he writes how he, he talks. <laughs> <laughs> By that you mean very hard to decipher. <laughs> <laughs> and very profound. <laughs> freedom is one of those... I don't know if you're planning on asking me what I think about the word freedom, but... It's one of those... Um, I, I mean, I, I just asked Isaiah Berlin, do you really want to go up against him? No. Because <laughs> it's basically going to be you against him. <laughs> he, he, it's not, these aren't his opinions about freedom. This is him being a philosopher and taking a step back. So as the title suggests, in this case, he's only dealing with two interpretations of freedom or liberty and he uses liberty and freedom interchangeably which is good to keep in mind as i read ahead the negative sense is involved in the answer to the question of what is the area within the subject a person or group of persons is or should be left to do or be what he is able to do or be without interference from other persons so what that's saying is that's more of a leave me alone kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And how big is the leave me alone space that surrounds me? Mm. 
That's yeah. the negative sense of freedom. When you encroach on my space, mm-hmm. you're you're negatively affecting my freedom or you're taking away freedoms. Mm-hmm. So the subtract, I guess that's that's a term that's used in art, subtractive. But let's think of it in those terms. If you have a block of clay and you mold it into something, that's maybe going to be more like positive freedom. And in this case, negative freedom would be like if someone chisels away your freedom and molds you into a person you don't want to be. Hmm. So he's more like defining already existing. Um, yeah. He's talking about already existing ideals. He's ta- he's basically talking about the two sides mm-hmm. involved in the war, but he is talking about that value pluralism element where these idea he's not disparaging either perception of freedom He's saying that these have come into conflict and that they both have, well, whatever, you'll see. Can I just ask you, um, is it possible to specifically illustrate with the war in mind how these two... I don't want to do that just yet because I don't want to taint people's perception of either. Okay. Because they are, that's sort of what we're doing here. And that's sort of what he's doing. And so, anyway. Untainted. Untainted. Um, The positive sense is involved in the answer to the question, what or who is the source of control or interference that can determine someone to do or be this rather than that? So, that's also pretty dense. (laughs) So, let me explain that. Who is the source of control or the interference that is capable of determining what someone can do or someone can be. So this has to do, this would fall into more of the categories of to not get into the war, we're going to go Clive and Bundy yeah. and universal healthcare. Okay. So these are, these are the champions for each side. Clive and Bundy doesn't want his freedom Cliven Bundy, for those of the people that don't remember because that happened a while ago, Cliven Bundy wanted his cattle to graze anywhere. And he felt that the government was infringing on his on his right by taxing him to graze on federal lands. Right? So his idea was an extreme negative interpretation of freedom, right? And we'll get into how negative freedom needs to be reasonably balanced. But his is an extreme sense where he feels like anybody trying to stop him from grazing anywhere is infringing on his 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 personal rights. Mm-hmm. And I just learned today that there was a time when your rights were also referred as your property. Hmm. Because people didn't necessarily have that much property, right? In the time of landowners. So if you, if someone tells you, if you read a lot of quotes from back in the day that say your property, a lot of times it refers to your personhood and your civil liberties. Hmm. So whereas the positive sense is more of the universal healthcare system where it would free you, right? The people that would argue for healthcare would be positive freedom people because they see healthcare as something that should be taken care of so that you're free to do other things. Hmm. So that you're free to function in the world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, 
and we'll do an episode on a concept that is also in the zeitgeist right now called universal basic income, and that would fall under that as well. We're not going to get into what that is, but if people know what it is, now they know. So we're going to get into the notions of negative freedom. The notion of negative freedom. I am normally said to be free to the degree to which no man or body of men interferes with my activity. Political liberty, in this sense, is simply the area within which a man can act unobstructed by others. If this area is contracted by other men beyond a certain minimum, I can be described as having been coerced, or it may be enslaved. Coercion is not, however, a term that covers every form of inability. If I, say, am unable to read because I am blind, it would be eccentric to say that I am to that degree, enslaved or coerced. And let me read that last sentence in his voice. It would be eccentric to say that I am, to that degree, enslaved or coerced. (laughs) You're missing the British. It's not British, but the inflection's in there. It's a little, unfortunately, in this world, it's a little too Woody Allen. (laughs) All right. Uh, So what that means is that there are limits to what this means. Like if you're, it, it, there are acts of God that really you can't control, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is argued very plausibly that if a man is too poor to afford something on which there is no legal ban, a loaf of bread, a journey around the world, recourse to the law courts, that's an important right. Yeah, it's so specifically worded, though. Law courts. I was like, wait, is that different than just uh Well, it's, I mean, it's, he's writing it from a British standpoint, yeah, okay. so it's not... He's not talking about... Amer- but our common law comes from there, or our law is based on the common law that comes from there, and we will do that in a podcast, because I just got a serious rundown from a friend of mine about things. I asked him one question, and I couldn't stop him. <laughs> Was it, what do you think about politics? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, can you uh, recommend some libertarian writers? And I learned what that means, and we're going to talk about it in a future episode, so you guys will have some fun. Okay. So, a loaf of bread, a journey around the world, recourse to the law courts. He is as little free to have it as he would be if it were forbidden him by law. This inability would not naturally be described as a lack of freedom. By being free in this sense, I mean not being interfered with by others. The wider the area of non-interference, the wider the freedom. This is what the classical English political philosophers meant when they used the word. They disagreed about how wide the area could or should be, but they still argued about it. And so that's what we're talking about with that Clive and Bundy example. And that's a guy who's taken the negative sense of freedom. It's like, you're not supposed to interfere with me. And I'm like, well, where do you draw the line? You think it's fine to just walk your cattle everywhere, but you're not doing that with the rest of your life. So he's just making a point with that one situation. Mm-hmm. And by the way, for those that don't remember, there was a gun standoff. <laughs> so it is also related to our gun talk in a, in a side way. And that's also a freedom, right? The mm-hmm. freedom to have your guns, yep. which I don't know, someone at some point mentioned <laughs> the Second Amendment. <laughs> yeah, who was that? I would be furious if someone tried to take away my rubber band guns. 
Oh, yeah. I've been stocking up on that shit. Really? Yeah, because somebody told me that... When the rubber band war comes? Hillary was going to take all the rubber band guns away. Oh, man. You live in a fun world, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd, I'm okay with my rubber bands being taken away as long as my pillows don't. Because when the pillow fight apocalypse comes, I'm going to need to be prepared. Mm-hmm. We're also going to be eating gumdrops. They suppose that it could not be unlimited because if it were, it would entail a state in which all men could boundlessly interfere with all other men. Consequently, the area of a man's free action must be limited by law. But equally, it is assumed that there ought to exist a certain minimum area of personal freedom which must on no account be violated. Men are largely interdependent and no man's activity is so completely private as never to obstruct the lives of others in any way. So this, there are basic, he's basically talking about that imaginary bubble of how much you can't, like there's, I, let's imagine two, two separate bubbles. One is the one that you can't go past and one is the one that the, the individual can't go past. So like you, the one that can't get infringed on is the inner one. And then on the outer layer, there is one that the person, the individual cannot just because then he'll start to clash with other people. Mm-hmm. And so like, for example, a crazy example, let's say you can afford to get into a lot of car accidents. And so you drive like a reckless maniac and you ram people on the road and as long as you don't get caught, you try to live like that. Like, let's pretend we're in a Mad Max world. That's a metaphor for sort of how you can't have all that freedom. There have to be rules. The traffic laws are there to sort of make sure that... Uh, it's trickier off private property, but I. But then, you know, in the internet world, internet age, maybe that's... Well, we're going to have a lot of issues coming up about what... It, I mean, I'm telling you guys... Wall Street has been screwing us for a long time, but Silicon Valley is coming after us much more intensely, and they're going to be working together eventually because their interests are similar. So, And if I can add a third party into this? Jesus. No. The candy manufacturers. Why? Um, Obesity epidemic? Yeah. I mean, we're also hooked on nougat... Right. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I tried. I, I, I didn't. I gave you this face. What is freedom to those who cannot make use of it? Without adequate conditions for the use of freedom, what is the value of freedom? There are situations, as a Russian writer declared, in which boots are superior to the works of Shakespeare. Individual freedom is not everyone's primary need. Now, this is one of the most important things that I want people to take away from this episode. Because this is really important. Rights are not, and it ties back to his quote, rights, if you look at the rights that people had back when he's talking about the divine rights of kings, where kings were blessed by God and they had the same authority, it's hard for us to think in those terms, but that was what people believed. And if you think about how much our rights have changed since then, it shows you that the only necessity that's consistent from then until now is the fact that we need food, we need water, and even labor is questionable. Whatever is coming forward, we know, we have a pretty good sense that 
within a very reasonable, within our lifetimes, which is a reasonable time frame, we're going to get into a time where people don't, they are not defined by their labor. And so thinking in terms about how much rights fluctuate, it's important to keep in mind that rights are not a tangible thing. They're not, they don't exist. They're perceived and they're not an actual need. So like he's saying, I forget, he doesn't say what writer declared it, but a a Russian writer declared that boots are superior to the works of Shakespeare in some cases. When you are freezing in the middle of and starving, even in Los Angeles, it's probably nice to have boots, right? Mm-hmm. It's, the winter is not that great, and we see a lot of homeless people here. Mm-hmm. So those people are less worried about their rights than they are, you know, Syrian refugees are less worried about, they're worried about their safety, their livelihood. There are needs that supersede freedom. Mm-hmm. Rights in general, but freedom specifically. And that's why freedoms can be so easily encroached upon. And that's what people, they, that, that sort of, there's a mentality, and this isn't a criticism, but we take the rights that we have as an entitlement, but the people that are trying to take those away from us know that they're not. And know this, that we have needs <laughs> that are much greater than that and that we will f- bend And we've been doing that for my entire lifetime. What troubles the conscience of Western liberals is that the minority who possess freedom have gained it by exploiting or at least averting their gaze from the vast majority who do not have freedom. They believe, with good reason, that if individual liberty is an ultimate end for human beings, none should be deprived of it by others least of all that some should enjoy it at the expense of others. So, people have a hard time knowing that there's people struggling elsewhere in the world, that they don't have the same freedoms. That goes, right now, the most relevant term to describe this is white guilt. But, it's first world guilt as well. And there's different layers of it. And, like I said... We have fun at white people's expense, but we also acknowledge that there's a conscience that is at play with a lot of, especially liberals in the world today, defined by the term liberal as it is defined today, because we will talk about what it used to mean on a later episode. Everything is what it is. Liberty is liberty, not equality or fairness or justice or culture or human happiness or a quiet conscience. If liberty of myself or my class or nation depends on the misery of a number of other human beings, the system which promotes this is unjust and immoral. But, and here's the important part, if I curtail or lose my freedoms to lessen the shame of such inequality and do not thereby increase the individual liberty of others, an absolute loss of liberty occurs. So, if you feel bad about your freedoms in comparison to those of others and you sacrifice your own freedoms out of that guilt but you don't help those people get more freedoms then a net loss of freedom happens 
nobody gets nobody benefits from that so whatever freedoms you have you need to hold on to them even if other people don't it's not a matter of giving up your freedoms out of guilt because other people don't have them it's a matter of fighting to give more people freedom um an example I'm sure he does, <laughs> but I left it out. But, uh, well, I'm just saying, like, if you're white guilt, like, if don't feel bad about your, or if you're privilege guilt, because let's be more inclusive here. If your privilege guilt gets to you, don't let that fuck you up. If you want to help them, don't give up your own freedoms. Fight for your own freedoms, because by fighting for your own freedoms, you help the net freedom by f- by uh practicing and fighting for my this is ne- of- still negative sense of the word freedom we're still talking about so does i mean can that mean spending a hundred dollars for dessert is that a freedom i should fight for i don't think that i i, I mean that's not necessarily a freedom that's being in, in yeah. infringed upon right I'm saying we're talking in terms of getting encroached upon, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you, I I get what you're saying. Like, should rich people be fighting for their freedoms? They are. So don't sacrifice your freedoms because they're not sacrificing theirs, right? Freedoms in terms of your rights, your right to vote, your right to unionize. All of those freedoms, every single one of them, if you sacrifice them for compromise, you're not helping the broader sense of freedom, according to this. Okay. So if you curtail your freedoms, right, and an absolute loss of liberty occurs, this may be compensated for by a gain in justice or in happiness or in peace but the loss remains and it is a confusion of values. Going back to that thing where you said, everything is what it is. Liberty is liberty. It's not quiet conscience. Quiet conscience does not equate liberty. And this is all philosophical, but it's relevant. Yet it remains true that the freedom of some must at times be curtailed to secure the freedom of others. Upon what principles should this be done? If freedom is a sacred, untouchable value, there can be no such principle. One or other of these conflicting rules or principles must yield, not always for reasons which can be clearly stated, let alone generalized into rules or universal maxims. What, then, must the minimum be? That which a man cannot give up without offending against the essence of his human nature. What is this essence? This has been, and perhaps will be, a matter of infinite debate. However, Berlin notes, the doctrine is comparatively modern. So he's basically saying that these are all things that this is like, this is where people like, quote unquote, men of action struggle. There is no conclusive. This is a balancing act, right? It's like that whole narrative cliche of good versus evil balancing each other out. Or maybe it's not so much a cliche. Sometimes it can be done well. But, you know, 
it goes back to biblical stuff about how there's uh, the, there's the devil and there's, I mean, Christian biblical, not Judeo, uh, Judeo, uh, I can't say Judeo without saying Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so (laughs) that should be a bumper sticker. (laughs) You can't say, well, no, actually that would be terrible. Uh, I meant to say that they were tied together, but Christians could read that differently. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, there's just no, it's, it, it is, it is that beautiful fight between value pluralism, like, or the moral relativism value pluralism element here, where it's, you can't really say definitively which idea is best. So he notes that the doctrine is comparatively modern. There seems to be scarcely any discussion of individual liberty as a conscious political ideal in the ancient world. The notion of individual rights was absent from the legal conceptions of the Romans and Greeks. This seems to hold equally of the Jewish, Chinese, and all other ancient civilizations that have since come to light. The domination of this ideal has been the exception rather than the rule, even in the recent history of the West. Nor has liberty in this sense often formed a rallying cry for the great masses of mankind. So all of this Clive and Bundy stuff that's happening, taking it to that extreme, that is like an entirely new thing because the idea of even individuality the sense of privacy itself, mm. which is the next sentence, of an area of personal relationships as something sacred in its own right derives from a conception of freedom which is scarcely older than the Renaissance or the Reformation. Yet its decline would mark the death of civilization, an entire moral outlook. So, that's how important and new this whole negative sense of freedom is. It's that American ideal. Mm-hmm. That's what we brand ourselves on. And, that, and, and it is sort of that whole parasitic sense of, of sons kill their fathers. We're a relatively new nation. I mean, relatively new society. Because like we've talked about, Italy was a nation after us, nation state, but they were states for a long time. The amount of time that it took to conquer the, the, the Americas and all of that and establish is since they started in, what, 1492 officially is when America was discovered. You're doing air quotes. Oh, yeah. America. <laughs> I think, I think the way I said that I said America <laughs> implied the air quotes. But, but thank you for pointing those out. It's, it's all pretty new... Um, conception of what rights are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting that he says that like it's, it's maybe an evolutionary part. And again, we're tying this into the Clive and Bundy as the extreme because we don't want to actually deal with 
World War One and World War Two. Well, we'll mostly be talking about World War Two in this episode, but we don't want to say which one is on which side. We'll let people figure it out. I know you already know which one's which. <laughs> but um, I was just thinking, it's, it's interesting how these things emerge later in history um, when we have you know, fewer resources, less land, when this thing of um, private property and ownership starts to kind of like become more mm, central to that belief. And I think it also has to do with, you can't underestimate the rise of the merchant class in this situation where once you dispel the myth of the divine king and the divine leader and it starts to become a little bit more of a sexual (laughs) secular (laughs) freud get out of my head (laughs) for the last time (laughs) for the last time buddy (laughs) you're out yeah the structures of control start to evolve but anyway he says that a characteristic of negative freedom that is of great importance is that liberty in this sense is principally concerned with the area of control, not with its source. Freedom in this sense is not connected with democracy or self-government. Self-government may on the whole provide a better guarantee of the preservation of civil liberties. I say be on civil, I've heard that before. Guarantee of preservation of civil liberties than other regimes and has been defended as such by libertarians. But there's no necessary connection between individual liberty and democratic rule. So that's an interesting thing. There is no connection between actual civil liberties and democratic rule. So people that champion, and I think we're experiencing a lot of that, right? Well, also, it's debatable whether we have democratic rule. (laughs) But anyway, the answer to the question, who governs me, is logically distinct from the question, how far does government interfere with me? It is in this difference that the great contrast between the two concepts of negative and positive liberty in the end consists. For the positive sense of liberty comes to light if we try to answer the question not, what am I free to do or be, but by who am I ruled, or who is to say what I am and what I am not, to be or do. The connection between democracy and individual liberty is a good deal more tenuous than it seems to many advocates of both. The desire to be governed by myself, or at any rate, to participate in the process by which my life is to be controlled, may be as deep a wish as that of the free area of action, and perhaps historically older, but it is not a desire for the same thing. So different is it, indeed, as to have led in the end to the great clash of ideologies that dominate our world. For it is this, the positive conception of liberty, not freedom from, but freedom to, to lead one prescribed form of life which the adherents of the negative notion represent as being, at times, no better than the specious disguise for brutal tyranny. So the positive conception of liberty, a lot of people that are... Here's where we'll get into which is which, all right? The positive sense of freedom is a very American kind of mentality. And a lot of what is happening right now is that proponents of this ideology that has been 
entrenched in our culture in America, but relatively new in the way that human beings have been governed, period. The people that support that negative sense of freedom of individual liberties as a space that you can't encroach on, they say that the positive sense of freedom is what is basically brutal tyranny. And it has led to that. But I think what his main point is, is that both of these systems lead to the same kind of thing. So as you listen to this, even though you know that it's a more socialist idea and in some cases, socialism has been turned into fascism. It's not necessarily always the case. And, you know, Russia's capitalist now. They're not communist anymore. So if we're going to vil- vilify them, we got to realize like, oh, their shady dealings, all of the oligarchy stuff is basically how we run our country as well. <laughs> So the positive sense of the word liberty derives from the wish on the part of the individual to be his or her his or her So the positive sense of the word liberty derives from the wish on the part of the individual to be his or her own master I wish my life to be my life and decisions to d- depend on myself and not external forces of whatever kind I wish to be the instrument of my own, not other men's acts of will. And this is where we get into sort of how this applies to universal healthcare, where right now people have to work extra and they're not necessarily getting paid enough because they're not getting paid a living wage. So they are, those are the external points, the external forces that affect their livelihood. And so this source of freedom is more okay with being ruled. This is, uh, the external forces would be the, they don't have any real say on what their income is, right? It's defined by the free market. Mm-hmm. And so the ex- that would be an exter- external force of, what, of any kind. An external force would be your job getting shipped to somewhere else Mm -hmm. and you're not, you know, um, so this sense of freedom is less concerned about how much space you have to function and do whatever it is you want. And it's more interested in what are the people that are ruling me doing for me? And so this is a much longer established sort of way of doing things with the monarchy and, other periods in history that have really before the idea of individual liberty really came about. And so a lot of that was where regicide comes from. (laughs) And if you're not happy, you revolt and you kill the king, which is pretty dramatic, but, um, and that's an extreme, but so this is, what is the king doing for us? Mm-hmm. Whereas we necess- don't necessarily worry about that as much because as long as the president's not taking away our guns, we don't really care about his morality and things like that. And right. that, that that's just one example, but it goes to th- that. That's like a relevant example for now, but it's the same thing with, you know, if you're actually vo- voting for policy, you're voting more a little bit more in line with these things. 
mm-hmm. rather than um, what is being taken away. Well, I guess the case for uh, having the right to abortion would be a negative freedom, right? Because you don't want your rights to be infringed upon on your body. Yeah, that's kind of... Uh I know it's a hot topic, but I'm just trying well, to. Def- it, yeah, but it's 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 from that perspective. It almost seems like a but it but at the of, this. I mean, I I think my assumption up till now has basically been like a left right breakdown. Like it's not. Yeah, it's not. So that's what I'm saying mm-hmm. because at the same time, for that particular argument you need a balance of both positive freedom and negative freedom Mm -hmm. because who's ruling you (laughs) is relevant as well Mm -hmm. because Planned Parenthood is a publicly funded situation. So that would fall under a more traditionally socialist idea. Right. And so what, what I am really interested doing moving forward is sort of, and I think what we kind of did in the uh, Kansas episode is sort of, get into what the ideas that we associate with things and what actually what they actually are mm-hmm. uh, and so and where they fall and i think that this is a really good way for us to define things moving forward where it's just does this fall under the new negative free- sense of freedom or the traditional positive sense of freedom under which society has functioned for a very long time because there are people not necessarily us that argue that despite the horrors of, and we don't know, we can't say for sure, but despite the horrors that Saddam did, uh, took upon his people, we destabilized the country to a way, in, into a place where people started to really feel that push of the uh, boots over Shakespeare, right? We were exporting democracy, and we exported democracy, we exported our idea of the negative sense of freedom, but nobody really got their personal freedoms because the positive sense of freedom got taken out from under them and the way that, and you know, they had blackouts. I don't know. I'm not up to date on what's going on in Iraq. I'm talking about specifically during the war and right after, like right, right Mm -hmm. after the invasion and all those things that we saw, this is that idea of exporting freedom. Hmm. So, um, not acted upon by external nature or by other men. External nature is important, and we'll get into that. Or by other men, as if I were a thing or an animal or a slave incapable of playing a human role or conceiving goals and policies of my own and realizing them. It is my reason that distinguishes me as a human being from the rest of the world. I wish, above all, to be conscious of myself as a thinking willing, active being, bearing responsibility for my choices and able to explain them by references to my own ideas and purposes. I feel free to the degree that I believe this is true and enslaved to the degree that I am made to realize that it is not. Now, I know this is dense and it's hard to respond to because you sort of need me to process it for you because yeah. you're listening to it and I've read it mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've read the same sentence several times and you're like, it's, auditory is difficult, but this deals with a little bit more human integrity, right? And this has to do with civil rights as well, because 
I wish above all to be conscious of myself as a thinking, willing, active being, bearing responsibility for my choices and able to explain them. So he, so it's like my point of view is valid and I want it to be represented. And I feel enslaved when this is not the case, when I do not feel like I feel dehumanized. Right. And so there's the argument that we're in late stage capitalism, just like socialism went through its uh, failure. And I think in many ways, this is something that's missing from, from our, this is why from, from our political discourse, right? This has to do with people not getting shot in their schools. If you got to worry about going to work, getting underpaid and having to be a teacher that carries a gun, this is not, uh, making you feel conscious of yourself as a thinking, willing, active being. Mm. <laughs> you are reacting to the environment around you. Mm. He says, it's easy to dismiss this as an arbitrary semantic argument. Yet the positive and negative notions of freedom historically developed in divergent directions, not always by logically reputable steps, until in the end they came into direct conflict with each other. Again, this is 13 years after World War II. So he is talking about how these two things these two ideologies really clashed, mm -hmm. but it's not that clear even now with the space to say which is which. And even he is not saying which is the right way. Mm -hmm. So they've just gone through this experience where there was definitely someone that was evil, <laughs> right? It's clear. The Nazis, no good. Yeah. I mean, interesting choice of words too, with the, the whole Eichmann, thing the banality of evil sorry go ahead um you know the hannah arendt book about eichmann in jerusalem no where he's on trial um the title is um the title is the banality of evil uh-huh and it's just about kind of like it's a good title trying to just square the fact that um you know these evil people were actually people and they were really they had to walk on two feet and deal with gravity and yeah. you know so this just this concept of evil is like as far as we've seen that is the best example of it but i don't really feel like i need to argue this i'm not trying to say hitler's not evil but it's, it's no, 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 just no, no, the concept no. of no well yeah. i guess no, I don't think that you, that either, per, I mean, this is a Zionist we're talking about, and he's not, this, he, Hitler doesn't own the positive sense of freedom. What I'm trying to say is that all of these ideas were very relevant, and like, in a sense, it is, and this is not what he's saying, this is how I'm reconciling everything that we've talked about on this show but what he's saying is that these ideas of negative freedom are newer and they are in some ways in conflict with these old ideas that the people that have this new negative freedom that are that, that are into this like america that are into this new negative sense of freedom 
they are suspicious because negative freedom is a reaction to positive freedom. But positive freedom and negative freedom both are equally capable of leading to the same kind of tyranny. Mm-hmm. So the And what he says, proponents of negative freedom will argue that positive freedom will lead to tyranny mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll get into why specifically and it has to do with a the, with a concept of self-mastery but we'll get into why this can get tyrannical mm-hmm. um but his argument is that both systems both systems of thinking lead to this extremist sort of situation where i think that it's a fair rhetorical argument it gets into that value pluralism they're both in conflict and neither of them both of them are taken to this very crazy extreme you could take negative freedom to the point where it conflicts with other people's idea of negative freedom right Mm -hmm. so even the idea the even one individual person's idea of what negative freedom or one person's idea of like let's say we take a socialist versus a libertarian and we compare them Socialists and libertarians conflict with social. Like, I mean, come on, libertarians. <laughs> they they they're not on. They don't have their shit together. They're all against. They all argue with any uh, amongst each other. And same thing with socialists, right? Same things with left leaning people. And there's a there's always a, a spectrum on that. And what he's saying is that it can get dangerous in both cases. Mm-hmm. One way of making this clear is in terms of the independent momentum which the initially perhaps quite harmless metaphor of self-mastery acquired. I am my own master. I am slave to no man. But may I not be slave to nature or to my own unbridled passions? Are these not so many species of the identical genus slave, some political or legal, others moral or spiritual, have not men had the experience of liberating themselves from spiritual slavery or slavery to nature? And do they not, in the course of it, become aware, on the one hand, of a self which dominates, and on the other, of something in them which is brought to heal? And this would be sort of Confucius, his sort of ideas of self-mastery, Right? I'm trying to think how that... Buddhism, self-mastery, self-abnegation, discipline. Uh Okay. Control, right? So this deals with not just other people controlling you, but your own nature controlling you. Mm -hmm. Your own... And that's where this gets into the tricky areas, right? Mm -hmm. That's where this gets into self-mastery becomes state mastery, Mm-hmm. And it becomes this whole societal structure of, are you, it's almost like Scientology. Are you, do you have your Thetans under control or whatever? I forget which, I think. Thetans? <laughs> I, I, we haven't done an episode on <laughs> Scientology, so we don't know shit yet. But, <laughs> but basically that idea of cleansing yourself, of being clear, right? Of not being compromised by your human nature, of this, this, there's, this is another ideal that can go to extremes. Mm-hmm. So I... Basically, this is an episode on why the idea of freedom itself is dangerous or how it can become dangerous. And it breaks it down into two categories. 
So, um, just to reread, or slavery to nature, and they do not. So this is about being a slave, not to other man, but of being a slave to nature, your own nature, of being slave to external nature, of the elements, right, dominating that. And so that gets into how it's a little bit more of an older sense of freedom because it gets into sort of how do we <laughs> build a community so that we can survive the the winter how do we get the harvest going you know we have to sort of um well and then but but this is this is one of the freedoms that agriculture brought us so that we could even have this discussion right, right. Yeah, I guess I interpreted that as being more about internal nature. Well, it has to do with both, right? So, like, I've gotten into the... I'm just sharing you with, like, how broad the scope of it is. So, So, and where the origins of the ideology are. So, the dominant self... Okay, so he talks about, on the one hand, of a self which dominates, and on the other hand, of something in them which is brought to heal in the person... This dominant self is then variously, variously identified with reason, with my higher nature, with the self which calculates and aims at what will satisfy it in the long run, with my real or ideal or autonomous self, with myself at its best, which is then contrasted with irrational impulse, uncontrolled desire, my lower nature, the pursuit of some ideal purpose not dreamed of by his empirical self. This also deals with how people interacted with each other before there was a set concept of privacy, personal liberty, right? You got to control yourself. You got to control your impulses. You got to control your inner natures because we all got to exist in this situation. We got all got to survive together. Smaller mm-hmm. communities. Mm-hmm. And as in the case of positively free self, this entity may be inflated into some super personal entity a state, a class, a nation, or the march of history itself, regarded as a more real subject of attributes than the empirical self. So that's how this self-mastery thing gets into the bigger, broader space. We belong to a class, right? When we're dealing with the the rights of kings, Mm -hmm. we're serfs. Mm And so we have different ways of functioning and different ideas and different expectations on ourselves in society than the royals do. But the positive's conception of freedom as self-mastery with its suggestion of a man divided against himself has lent itself more easily to the splitting of personality into two, the transcendent dominant controller and the empirical bundle of desires and passions to be disciplined and brought to heel. It is this historical fact that has been influential. This demonstrates that conceptions of freedom directly derive from views of what constitutes a self, a person, a man. So these ideas of freedom come from how you define what it means to be a person. Mm-hmm. Enough manipulation with the definition of man and freedom can be made to mean whatever the manipulator wishes. Recent history has made it only too clear the issue is not merely academic. The consequences of distinguishing between two selves will become even clearer if one considers the two major forms which the desire to be self-directed, directed by one's true self, has historically taken. The first, that of self-abnegation in order to attain independence. The second, that of self-realization 
or total self-identification with a specific principle or ideal in order to attain the same self-end. So both are an objective to get to the same place. Self-abnegation and self-realization, but they're different approaches. Mm-hmm. The goal is transcendence. Yeah. Um, and so that's the end of my abridging. It's interesting, you know, certain libertarian things kind of cross over with liberal things. And, uh-huh. um, which, you know, I think abortion might be an interesting one of those. Yeah. Um, and also drugs and just, you know, in general, like. Well, that's those are two very good examples, right? Those are state, um, those are issues of the state encroaching. And in one case, you have negative freedom prevailing in the case of abortion for now. I have actually been to countries like the Philippines where abortion is illegal. Mm -hmm. And that is scary. And I had, and when I heard that, it blew my mind. But also on the other side of that, the negative freedom is the guns. What was the example you used just now? You said abortion drugs. And, and drugs. And drugs. Yeah, that's. Uh, no, but, but, but drugs. Uh, and sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you going to say? Duerte with uh, policies that are now being proposed. But you ha- like to, to, for the analogy that I'm excited about based on what you just said was the idea of with fast food. That's a negative freedom. You can't encroach on someone's freedom or with putting on seatbelts and shit like that. Like, that's not really an argument, but some people say, oh, you can't tell me to... It's maybe a little antiquated. Like, but yeah. like fast food, like I can I can have as big a fucking soda as I want. Fuck you. That's, right. that's a, but at the same time, on the other hand, you have, oh, you can't have an abortion. And those are both conservative things, but those are both the same argument mm-hmm. right. and it, it's the same argument as you can imprint. So, so it's an interesting, it's a very interesting sort of weighted. Like, I think that once I got into this, one of the things that has been really useful for me is everything I read after it. I'm very clear on, is this a positive freedom or negative freedom? And that doesn't mean whether it's, but it just helps me understand where the pitfalls are of this kind of thinking. For example, when we did the lucid dreaming episodes, that's all about self-mastery. That's all about mm-hmm. being in contention with your inner nature. And, and, and so those are all not irrelevant. And, and I think that that's sort of where we're getting into this. That, that's sort of where we are. We're having a very, very interesting discussion with where America, some the people in power in America have benefited from the negative sense for their, themselves, right? Like, don't tax us <laughs> and things like that. And now people are starting to say, hey, you're super rich. You govern us. We maybe need a little bit more positive freedom so that we can have health care mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's a very interesting way 
to think of ideology and ideas that are being proposed from the basis of whether it's a matter of self-mastery or not, or whether it's a matter of interference. Yeah. That would be, interference would be negative, uh, self-mastery would be positive, and self-mastery, uh, and, but also self-mastery has to do with who you're being governed by, giving people the authority to govern you, but by means that are determined by you. Mm-hmm. So the idea that socialists, like that's why someone, controversial, trigger alert, or trigger warning, someone like Bernie Sanders, he, he can present to people, I mean, at the beginning of everything, of the of the whole election, the idea that Bernie Sanders would get as far as he was, I you know, I had no idea he would be able to do it. And that's because there is a push in this country for that kind of um, free, free education, which our country used to do. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. So it's interesting. It's an interesting debate. If you can afford me a, a silly example, uh-huh. I was just thinking about yesterday. So I was at a bar, bar restaurant. And With your wife or you have friends? Yeah, yeah, than she me? was there. Oh, okay. So we were, she was there. <laughs> I was supervised, Javier. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like not really the point, but um, so we were... Sitting at the bar, and then this guy came and sat next to her, mm-hmm. and he ended up ordering dinner and a few drinks. So he was there. He overlapped basically the entire time with us. Uh-huh. The entire time he was on his phone, and it's just yeah. a pet peeve of mine. And I'm, I joked at the time that I would rather that he were smoking next to me than, <laughs> than have to deal with this glare from yeah. his phone all the time, like. Well, that, that the smoking thing is an interesting sort of, uh, well, there's two interesting things that I think of, right? You're not allowed to have cell phone jammers. Those are extremely illegal. By jammer, you mean pajamas so, for your phone? Yeah, cell phone jammers. <laughs> no, uh, something that blocks cell phone signals within your area. And the reason they do that is because people need to be able to call 911. Mm. And that's why it's such a serious crime. But... So there Why would are, you ever use a jammer? Like, who would do that, and for what purpose? Well, I mean, you just said one. Oh, for, but could you? You couldn't turn it on. Or you just couldn't get a service. Yeah, you just wouldn't. You're, you, uh, yeah, you you wouldn't be able to talk on your phone. So if I'm doing a lecture and I don't want people to be. Yeah, using. but it's illegal, so don't. Okay. But yeah, and then the other thing. What was your other example? Oh, the smoking, the smoking. That comes into how you have to limit people's personal freedoms to, right? That's where that, um, there used to be a time where the smoker's personal freedom was paramount Mm. and they were allowed to smoke wherever, including in planes. And then, and and then health became back again in certain, really, I haven't been hearing things. I think maybe it's the new Austrian government is uh oh but uh, the europe is still kind of strong yeah. like i mean i went to barcelona in i think it was 2010 and you could cut through the smoke like a cartoon like you know woody woodpecker cartoons where mm. where like you would take a saw and just cut a big hole through a, a bit of smoke 
poke something in it and pull it out and it would just like leave a huge gap in the smoke yeah mm-hmm. that's how thick it was over there so and i <laughs> and i remember people from europe on international flights coming back saying like this is ridiculous <laughs> people from europe <laughs> a very specific part of europe a very specific gentleman portuguese from yes the, from the accent <laughs> um cool man so yeah this is a one-off <laughs> how does that feel oh my god hey guys if you had fun feel like you learned something rate and review us on itunes subscribe all of that really helps us we're at what's my thesis at javier proenza and at seth lauer on Instagram.